He is from North Central Ohio, a farmer and a lay pastor. And until relatively recently, he was a member of the Amish Church. His name is Andy Weaver. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. Andy Weaver, thanks so much for joining me. A pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be here. Oh, great. We're going to have a good time here over these next few minutes. I want to go back almost to the beginning. I said a moment ago you were once a member of the Amish Church. So tell me a little bit about where that all began. Your upbringing, I'm assuming you were born into an Amish family. Let's go back there. Yeah, that's correct. I was born in a family of eight. Uh, very conservative Amish, Schwarzenberger Amish, for those of the, for those that know what that means. Very conservative. Well, what what does that mean? Well, um, you know, initially when the Amish started, it was just one group, obviously, until about that you know, was from 1700s to about 1910. Uh, one a group broke away that wanted that you know the world was changing and they didn't want to embrace all the change that some of the mainstream Amish church was embracing. And so they broke away, and they just kind of, you look at them today, you think, uh, especially you go into their community, you think you're living in the 1900s, no, 1800s. Yeah. yeah. So what, that, what you're indicating here already is that even within the Amish as a group, there are different, there are variations in how that plays out in the life. Can you explain some of that for me? Yeah, very much so. So most Amish people are, well, no Amish groups allow driving cars. There may be a few exceptions, though, the last five or ten years. Uh, but most Amish groups are allowed to ride in cars to go to work and things like that, which we were not. We were allowed to ride in cars, like to go to a doctor if there was an emergency, or obviously we would ride in like um, uh, transportation, like public transportation, uh, buses and stuff, but we couldn't just hire a neighbor to go to Walmart or something. And so that's one of the things that makes it different. We were very primitive. Most Amish families have indoor plumbing. They'll have some form of showers or, or that kind of thing. We did not have that. So let me ask you what that was like as a kid growing up in these, to use your words, sort of primitive circumstances. How did you relate to that? That was normal. We, know we, uh, we had friends that were not Amish. And, you know, we went to their, we'd go to their house and kind of look around. We thought, wow, this is just a different world. But we, I never questioned it. I, it's like, I, you know, that's the way worldly people lived. And we thought the way we lived is the way God wanted us to live. And so it was very normal for us. You might have just answered my question. Why is it that kids going to a modern home didn't say, wow, we want this? What, why, why were you satisfied with your primitive lifestyle? I think it was, it was partly, I think the community contributes to that. We were part of a community that we felt we had a sense of belonging. Um, and so, yeah, we would go to town, and we didn't even know how different we were. It didn't matter to us, because uh, we had our own community, and we were just born and raised and, you know, taught that that the way we lived is the right way to live. And obviously, we didn't think that everybody is lost that, that doesn't live like us, but we believed if people were born and raised uh, Amish, then that's the way they we have to, you know, to remain the rest of our life. Typically, what sort of a reaction did you get as you think back on your younger life? What sort of reaction did you get from the people you mingled with and mixed up with when you went to town? You know, today people see Amish folks and their horses and or in their buggies being pulled by horses, and it's uh, 
I don't mean to be disrespectful, but it's, it's, it's a curiosity. Yes. It's kind of fun to see because, wow, that's different. So what sort of a reaction did you get? It was a mixed reaction. I would say that most, for some people, obviously in the community, you know, it was just normal to them. But some people despised us because they had a bad experience with a bad person in the Amish community because they're there. But for the most part, people really respected us. It would seem to me that for young people to grow up in, in this wider society, in a, in a sub-society within that society with different values, transmitting those values to your kids has got to be, well, a challenge on some level. So talk to me then about the, um, the moral leadership within an Amish community. What I mean is you must have mothers and fathers who are very definite in what they believe and have very strong convictions. I mean this in a positive way. That's good. Talk about how, how Amish parents transmit those values to their, to their children. Well, you know, it, it, there's a difference. Uh, most Amish parents are very verbal. I mean, they talk to their children, their children a lot about their beliefs and their, their values. And uh, my parents did. They had a lot to say about the world and not to be part of the world. And, and a lot of it is just example. You know, like I said earlier, you're part of a community. You look, look up to your leaders and you believe everything they say. And it's easier because your young people are not introduced to the world as much as far as today. Like in, you know, in the secular world, the children get introduced to all kinds of things on social media and those things. The Amish don't have that. So if the parents can deprive them by, by seeing, from seeing it, uh, there's, they just don't have as much of a pull than what, you know, most people in the world mm-hmm. would experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so explain to me a little bit about, uh, about what your upbringing was like. You were raised on a farm, I presume? Yes, I was raised on a dairy farm. Um, didn't go anywhere other than school and church, just about. Um, get up early in the morning and milk the cows, and have breakfast. And of course, we had our prayers. Our prayers were all scripted, so the same prayer every morning, except Sunday morning we had a different prayer. My dad would always pray. You know, he would, we would kneel and he would read the prayer. Um, so it was a, definitely a routine, and you always you knew every morning when you got up, kind of what your routine was like, was going to be a, uh, like. But yeah, you worked, get up five o'clock in the morning and work until nine o'clock at night or so. So no voca- no vacations. I remember you like this. I remember one time I was traveling to New York, to upstate New York, not New York City, and to wait uh, for a wedding, and we met a person at the bus station. And he was asking us a lot of questions about Amish. And he goes, so what do Amish people do for recreation? And I go, oh, I didn't even know what he meant. Because we had no vacations. We didn't do any, you know, we didn't have any recreation. We just worked, worked, worked. And of course, we had a lot of, on a farm, you have a lot of spare time. It's not, not like you're just sweating, sweating all day, but yeah. So we didn't, we were just, yeah, we just stayed at home. It was it was a very innocent life. Uh, very, I was very shielded from a lot of the bad things in the world, uh, clearly. But I also was deprived from understanding um, what life was about. I was deprived from understanding what, what God, what Christ was about in the Bible. Even though we read the Bible on Sundays, we would never read our Bibles during the week. Mm. Uh, if we did, it was a secret. Two questions to ask you, I think, and one is I want to get to the idea of of Amish religious beliefs, biblical beliefs. But 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 first, t- take me back to where this all began. 
where did where did the Amish church, the Amish lifestyle, the Amish people originate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you know it goes all the all the way back to the 16th century. I, you know, more or less with uh, Menno Simons. He was kind of the uh, reformer, the founder of the Mennonite Church, the way it turned out. And they were very strong on on uh, church discipline. Uh, they wanted, they had high standards. And as time progressed, I think it was about a hundred years after his death, there was a lot of controversy in the church over church discipline. And so um, one group, they kind of split. One group went one way, and the other group kept going. Uh, the Amish kind of, uh, there was not too much distinction in the, at first until the world started changing, as you can imagine, around the 20th century. Yeah. And then things started really, the world started progressing, and the Amish just, yeah, they said, we're not going to embrace the change. And so today you look at Amish people, and especially conservative, conservative Amish, such as Schwarzenegger Amish, you, you know, so you say, where did, where did you, some of the ideas come from? Well, that's the way everybody lived back in the day. They just never embraced the change. Yeah. Um, so there are there are variations today among Amish people. Some are more conservative, some are less conservative. Talk to me about that. Explain that. Yeah. So obviously there was a main group. They they are called old order Amish even today, um, and they're still a mainstream Amish. And they kind of they kind of uh, adapt to the changes in the world, and and then all the different groups kind of split off there. You have new order Amish that broke away about. Or split off about 30 years ago. Uh, they have a lot more modern conveniences, and they might even have tractors in the field and things like that. But for the most part, most splits, and the Amish split a lot. They have lots of church splits, especially in the last 30 years. Just a lot of things that they just disagree upon. It's the world changing so fast. The young generation is adapting to it. And so usually more conservative people are splitting off. And so you just have you have, you know, I'll tell you something interesting in our church. We have people that were born Schwarzenegger Amish, and we have people that were born and raised Old Order Amish. And the Old Order Amish, had, they had to humble themselves to come to worship with us because the difference was so big. They looked down on us because they're a lot more, they're just a lot more in tune with the world and, you know, all that. Whereas the, the Schwarzenegger Amish, a lot more primitive. And so, yeah, it gives us a, the, the old or Amish could relate with you more than with me. That's how, that's how big the difference is. Even though they're in their horse and bucky, um, yeah, as far as everyday life, they could relate with you more than me. You, you said something interesting a minute ago. You said that the prayers are read. You get together for prayer and read the prayer. Um, my expectation is, in fact, I think my understanding is that most people who are vaguely familiar with Amish uh, at least know that they exist, would more than likely believe that the Amish live the way they live and believe what they believe because they're such biblical people and they're dedicated to the Bible. So I, I don't want to ask this in a critical way, but explain to me the basis of an Amish person's religious faith, their Christian faith. What's that really built on? And not just their faith in terms of religion, but their, their, their day-to-day practices. What does that spring from? What's, what does that go back to? That's a good question. And because of the, the great variation of the different Amish churches, it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, answer. But in my experience, you know, the people I grew up with, their basis is tradition. 
Obviously, they read their Bibles, they believe their Bible, and, and they, you know, they really like when their beliefs line up with the Bible and all that. But at the end of the day, they wouldn't, they wouldn't bat an eye to, uh, to tell you that, you know, to admit that, you know, when tradition and scripture conflicts, they would go with tradition. Mm. So it's not as though everything is, thus saith the Lord, it's, no. this is what we believe because this is what our great-great-grandfather did. They just, well, it's what our great-great-grandfather did. That's, yeah, that's what they believe. So they have a lot of trust in their forefathers, and they believe that they were godly people, and, you know, what they, especially when it comes to theology, whatever they, the conclusion was of their study, they will just adopt those and accept those, and they don't keep digging or searching for more. Because let's be honest, it's got to be pretty easy for Amish people to justify their lifestyle. In today's society. That's true. That's so true. Today's society is just this runaway train of, of permissiveness and sin and anything goes. And I, I think most people will probably have a great amount of admiration for Amish people to, for sticking to their guns. But you've been on the, the, the very, very inside of that and you've looked out and you've had someone explain to you, well, we don't look at that because it's wicked. And 99 times out of 100, that's 100% true. So does it become, from that point of view, relatively easy for an Amish grandpa to sit his grandkids down on his his knee and say, here's why we stay away from that boy? Yes. The world world does a pretty good job of of explaining to young Amish people why why the the church and the community would stay away from that stuff. You are so correct. The the world does does a nice job keeping the Amish people in the church. Because in, 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 the, in the eyes of an Amish person, an average Amish person, they don't see any difference between you and a drug addict because you dress the same as far as they're concerned. Because the Amish are very visual. And so they look at the way people dress. And you know, they, uh, they're fruit inspectors, so, um, so to speak. And so, yeah, when, when the Amish people hear about all the drug addictions and all the bad things that happen in the world, they they don't understand you know, in the in the in their minds that is that is every you know that is more or less everybody um, so they look at you and they say well you're part of that you're part of that group and so it doesn't really occur to them that well you you might dress you know you might not dress Amish but that doesn't mean that you embrace any of the values that some of some of the people that they look they look upon and you know abhor. Uh, that you don't share those values. That doesn't really cross their mind. Yeah, it's not a unique uh, outlook. You, you'll find Muslims living in, let's say, Middle Eastern countries, and they'll see the 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 the, the female pop star wearing almost nothing and yes. acting most inappropriate, and then they'll say, "Well, you're with her." Yes. Same society, same <laughs> culture, same lifestyle. You're all the same. Yes. So society does a pretty easy job of lumping us all in together, like they a do. pretty good job. They do. Yeah, yeah. So, you were a member of the Amish Church. Uh, you're not today. That's correct. Somewhere along the line, wheels started to turn. Questions started to be asked in your mind. You said that the genesis of that was um, questions you had about church discipline. That's correct. Why did those questions arise? Well, I think they arose because I, I, was, I always read the Gospels a lot. And... 
I started, you know, I always had questions growing up. I look back, I know I was different. I kind of thought outside the box, which is not so true for Amish people. A lot of them just kind of think inside the box, especially by the time they become members of the church, about 18 years old. They just kind of surrender their individuality to the church. And that's very true. They do. Um, they just, whatever the church wants, they just kind of surrender that. Because what's the alternative? They don't see a healthy alternative. And at the end of the day, they can look at their communities and they can see strong families, strong marriages. And well, you want to say strong marriage, at least there's no divorce and remarriage, and that kind of thing. And so, um, so I was very content there. But as I read, I said earlier, I read the book Martyr's Mirror, and I discovered that our forefathers believed in that you can be right without God before you have everything right in your life, uh, as long as you were genuinely looking to seek, seeking to follow Christ. And so that really prompted me to get into my Bible, and I started re- reading my Bible in a whole new way because I just used to read it. Just it was it was pre what's the word? I, I'm going to make up a word, I guess. It was pre-interpreted. Uh, you know, you're reading it with a preconceived idea. Sure. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, lots and lots of people. Oh, like yes. That. And that's easy to do even, you know, for all of us. Yeah. But that's the way I always read my Bible. And, you know, I would read it. And whatever it said, I would just say, well, this is what the bishop says it means, and so on. I started re- thinking for myself. And that just took me down a road that I never saw coming. I never, I had no idea that it would lead to actually being a member of another church. Yeah, well, let's dig into a little bit of that. I'll ask you one brief question. You read the Bible. Your eyes were being opened. Your heart was being touched. What did you do next? Well, I, since nobody was bringing literature to me, I was buying literature. So I started buying literature, by the box full, and just reading commentaries on, I was especially interested in the book of Revelation. It was scary, but I was impressed that there is something significant, something I need to know about the book of Revelation, especially Revelation 13. So I was buying literature, and some of it was quite good, and some of it I had a hard time settling with. Um, and it just, it was, there was, I, I definitely got introduced to righteousness by faith, justification by faith, which is where it all starts. And these people did a very nice job explaining that. And of course, that led me to, you know, to an experience with God. And the Bible, the Bible was becoming alive to me, and God was becoming real, not this far away God. It was becoming more personal. Well, I know there's a lot more. We are just scratching the surface. I'm anxious to find out more, and I know you are too. I'll be back in just a moment with more from Andy Weaver and our conversation. Miracles. Events that can only be explained as the actions of an all-powerful God. If you look at the Bible, you'll find it's full of miracles. Parting the Red Sea, healing the blind, walking on water, raising the dead. Many have claimed these events never happened. But did they? Is it important for Christians to believe in miracles? And do they still happen today? Join me for Do You Believe in Miracles? We'll meet some remarkable people and hear some incredible stories. We'll learn what miracles are and what they're not. And we'll discuss the greatest miracle of all time. One that has significance for every human being on earth and the potential to change your life entirely. Do You Believe in Miracles? 
brought to you by It Is Written TV. You know that at It Is Written, we are serious about the study of the Word of God, and we encourage you to be serious about God's Word also. Well, I want to share with you another way that you can dig deeper into the Word of God, and here it is. It is written dot study. Go online to itiswritten.study and you can access the It Is Written Bible Study Guides, 25 in-depth Bible studies that will walk you through the Bible. It's going to be good for you, and it's the sort of thing that you will want to tell somebody else about so that they can dig deeper into the Word of God and come to know the things of the Bible intimately. As you get into the It Is Written online Bible study guides, you'll understand the prophecies of the Bible, the plan of salvation, and more. So don't forget, itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. Welcome back to Conversations, where my very special guest is Andy Weaver. Andy, a moment ago you were talking about having been born into an Amish community, raised in an Amish family, You were a member of the Amish church, but as you read your Bible, your eyes were opened, your heart was opened to things that you'd never seen before. Well, somewhere along the line, things came to a head because we've said you were a member of the Amish church. You're not now. There was a change came about. What really precipitated that change? Because I'm imagining as Amish, you could read and read and read and grow in your understanding of the Bible and still remain happily Amish. What happened? Where was that tipping point? Yeah, that's correct. And that was, I had every intention. And as I was growing and reading my Bible, and the Bible became a life. And, and I had, you know, I had every intention to stay there forever. So you, you, there was never any axe to grind, never any hard no. feelings, never any, I've got to get away from these people? No, no. But I was really studying our history because I, I felt like what our church needed more than anything was revival. And so I was studying history. And I, as I mentioned earlier, I was reading the book, um, Martyr's Mirror, which sure. was a Mennonite book together, put together by a Mennonite. And then somebody, a friend of mine, brought me another book that contributed to, to that. Um, it's called The Great Controversy. And this really, I really enjoyed this book because it really helped me understand why there are so many different denominations, where we came from, because I, I never learned any of these things in school. So I didn't know our history. I didn't know where we were from. I knew there was a Dark Ages, but I didn't know the years, and I knew there was a Martin Luther because we read the Martin Luther German Bible. That was our Bible, the Bible we used, uh, that translation. And so I knew about those things, but I never could put them together until I read the book uh, Great Controversy. That's where I understood who Martin Luther was. And to my dismay, I discovered that Martin Luther was excommunicated. Yes, he was. Well, we would never read books that were written by excommunicated people. Oh, and we were using a Bible that was translated by a man that was excommunicated by the church. We thought once a person was excommunicated, regardless of the circumstances that he found himself in, uh, or regardless of the reasons for excommunication, if the person was excommunicated by the church, then they're damned. We believed that. And so I discovered who Martin Luther was, and I was really intrigued, and, and, and more than intrigued, I was inspired by Martin Luther. And of course, John Wesley and those other people that were just had really a love for truth. And of course, you know, as I read into history, I started seeing why we do what we do, and some of the things that we believe, why we believe them, and some of those things were biblical, and some of them were tradition. 
And I started seeing where they came from, the origins of uh, some of those uh, values that we held. And, you know, eventually after a few years, there was kind of a, a collision. I think it first started in my head. And then, of course, as I started talking about it, eventually, you know, the church was pretty unhappy with that. And, and it's not like I, my church had a big blow up or anything, but I just, I had convictions that I could not put away. I just, I couldn't put away. Mm. I had to acknowledge them. I kind of, uh, I really suppressed my convictions for a few years. Convictions about what? Theological convictions. Um, we were not teaching righteousness by faith in our church. We did not know that we can get up in the morning and be happy and feel like we are forgiven. We did not know that we can have assurance of salvation today, despite our problems. We did not know that God wants to actually recreate us into His image in this world. We did not know anything about being born again and those kind of things. And so those were real, those were real concerns to me because we were baptizing people into the church and they had to agree to wear straw hats and their bonnets and all these things, and I, I was okay with that. But they didn't know how to be right with God. And I spoke to my bishop about that, and of course he was, he was pretty worried about me, because he, he knew I was, uh, I was studying my Bible, and I was, I was having some conflict in my mind over some, some of the teachings that they were teaching versus what I was discovering. And so, but, it, most of the things that I was discovering were not a problem. I could still be Amish and believe those things, but it troubled me. It really troubled me to see what the young people were missing out on, and all everybody, especially the young people, as they were becoming part of the church. Um, and then, of course, I discovered things like, you know, what happens when you die? And, you know, you'll be amazed by this. I was taught correctly. We believe that when when people die, they, they sleep in their sleepless graves until the resurrection. And I was really intrigued because I was actually, in my study, uh, I was influenced by literature that I was reading. I thought that maybe we were wrong. People were actually going straight to heaven or hell. I was, but anyways, it didn't take me long to, to see that we, were, we had that right. It was biblical. But when it came to other things such as the Sabbath, uh, we were staunch Sabbath keepers. Really believed that the Ten Commandments were still binding. We had to memorize them in school. and um, We were staunch Sabbath keepers. And I was just really, really troubled when I realized that we were not actually keeping the Sabbath. So what, what happens? You mentioned your bishop starting to get worried about you. Um, I, I, I so want to ask you that if, if Amish people don't have the joy of the Lord for forgiven sin and the assurance of salvation. I mean, I'll ask that question first. What do they have? If, if you can't get through today knowing that Jesus is a present Savior and should I die, I die in the assurance of his grace, what, what, are, they, what, are, what are those folks facing? Well, I, I don't want to. I want to make one thing clear. There's Amish people that have assurance of salvation, I believe. Okay, okay. Not so much in the community that I grew up in, though. Um, maybe, maybe it's a little bit like my background. The truth is there, but where we were, no one was finding it. No yes. one was celebrating it. Yes. There were maybe some people who had, had their arms around it, but the majority didn't. So, okay, I, so I can't that's, see what that's, that's very true. Yeah. Take me back to the bishop. He, he, he's concerned because you're studying the Bible, and 
I'm putting myself in his shoes. You know, I'm, I'm okay. Andy's a good young fellow and he's growing in his love for God. But now you start coming with doctrinal differences. What sort of reaction did you meet with? Well, my bishop was very worried. I mean, extremely concerned about it. And I, 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 felt, I felt really bad for him because he was, I mean, he was visibly distressed because he didn't want to lose me. You know, I, I got along with everybody just fine. I had a good relationship with the bishop and everything. And, but he seriously considered it. Seriously considered it, because uh, he, you know, he was he always taught. You know, most of the people, most of the people that left our church, they they would come back and they kind of you know a lot of them went off the deep end and they come back and say, look, it doesn't matter what you do, you can as long as you have Jesus in your heart. And the Amish people abhor that kind of teaching because they're like, well, your life doesn't line up with you know, if you love the Lord, why are you just living a crazy life? Which is which is correct. Yeah, and they're yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah. And so usually they would come back and they say, look, the law was done away with. You know, we don't live under the law and that kind of thing. And the bishop thought that's the way I was headed. Well, when he discovered that I was, that's not the way I was headed, he didn't know what to do with it. Because they knew how to, they, they would always you have the scriptures lined up ready for those that say the law was done away with. But now I'm coming and says, yeah, look, part of the new covenant is the law written in the heart. And that doesn't you know, nullify the law. It's still, you know, the Ten Commandments, you're correct. They're still binding. And he was just distressed. He didn't know what to do with it. And eventually the easiest thing for him to do was just uh, excommunicate me. And that's what happened? That's what happened. So you knew that if you carried on down this road, excommunication was an option. You knew that. Oh, yeah. I knew yeah. that was the only... only... Yeah. Now, you'd been taught all your life that the excommunicated are damned. Yes, that's good. So reconcile that for me. That had to be a, a pretty solemn experience to go through. Yeah, it was. And it, it had to be a process. You know, God just took me a day at a time, step by step. And of course, you know, eventually, especially reading the history of Martin Luther and the Reformers, I realized that, that you know, at the end of the day, unless the church works biblically, they have no authority. And so by the time we got to the excommunication part, that I didn't bat an eye. I mean, it had no, no impact on me other than, I mean, no spiritual impact on me. Obviously, uh, it had a great impact on our family. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about shunning the, uh, some Amish. Your, your order of Amish practiced shunning? That's correct. What's, what's it like to go through that? Practically, what happens? Yeah, so basically today I can do, you know, I, I'm a part of the community, and tomorrow you wake up, and it's all over. I can't, I can't go, you know, eat with them. Not even my parents, my brothers, my sisters. I can't do any business with them. I'm, I'm in the community, but I'm not of the community. It's all over. Like if they have any family reunions, I, I won't find about it. Weddings, uh, funerals, they will tolerate me. I can still go to funerals. They will tolerate me there. But, but, but what if as the prodigal son you just turned up to that reunion? What, what would happen then? Um, it, it's a mixed reaction. It's like a funeral. Um, some people are very glad you come. Others are just, they won't, you know, they'll ignore you. And, um, so, so it seems like your option is to leave the community. Yeah, that's, that is, that's what uh, 99% of the people do when they are excommunicated. And that's what we tried to do, but the Lord wouldn't open the doors. We couldn't, we couldn't, we had bought the property. We do, and you know what's crazy? We did not want to buy the property. Our home and our farm where we moved and we wanted to rent it. And it was a lady that owned it. She was widowed. She said, and it's just, just, let's just put it in your name. And you make payments. You can start making payments in two years. And you just, and she, she wanted low payments. And she said, you can, you can have the property. 
And so, of course, the deed was done legally, but nothing else was. It was just a, a handshake. So it became yours. It became ours. On a handshake. Yeah. Presumably, this is the honor system. I'm trusting you to That's pay correct. for this. That's correct. And so we were stuck on the property, and we're so glad now we were. Yeah. But back then, you just want to throw everything down and run as fast as and as long as you can. Get away from it. Well, so many things I want to ask you. Um, f- first, as an observation, I'd like you to comment on this. Shunning's got to be difficult to go through. It is. But it's got to be difficult to do. I mean, you're my son, for That's example. Correct. I raised you, and now it's my duty to treat you as though you're dead. That's got to be hard for the person doing the shunning. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible hard on, on the parents. Has to be terribly hard on my my parents, especially my mother. She tried to persuade her to persuade herself that I don't exist, not because she didn't love me, but because she couldn't endure, she couldn't deal with the shunning. And of course, that didn't work. And so today, we have a good relationship. I you know I can go I go to her house every couple times a year, and because I maintain my lifestyle. Um, she, they still welcome me in, and we have a nice time. And I, I, I'll just tell you, the Lord is really working. Yeah, that's yep. fantastic. Yep. I just can't help but think if, if, if I was expected to shun my children, I mean, I can't imagine what they would have had to do for me to get to that place, but that would be awfully difficult for me. So I don't think there's any winners in that, is there? There's no winners, only the, the enemy. Yeah. So why didn't you decide when it was like, okay, people are going to treat me like I'm dead, what, you mentioned that God kind of held you there, but why didn't you just decide, let's walk away, I'll take my family, we're going to go to wherever it might be. What kept you? That's a good question, because at the one time we were talking about some of our, some of our theological differences with the church, my wife came up with a bright idea. She said, Andy, couldn't we be Amish and embrace this, this, this truth that we're discovering? And I thought, that's an idea. And so that's what I said, look, so we can embrace this, even if they excommunicate us. That doesn't mean I have to get rid of my horse and bucky and all the things that I love that were normal to me. And so that's what happened. We were excommunicated, and we just lived our Amish lifestyle. And, of course, when you don't have the church telling you you can't do this and you can't do that, you, you adapt and gradually make some changes and um, that kind of thing. But we were, yeah, but like I said earlier, we were kind of stuck with the property, so we couldn't get off, and that that was God's doing, because He didn't want us to leave. Yeah. And this led us to starting our own church plant, and, and yeah. It was. Okay, we've transitioned from, from Andy to us. When you were going through this spiritual journey, you were married at the time? That's correct. Okay, now, now it's one thing for an individual human being to come to the realization that he or she is at odds with his or her church community. You had a wife that you had to explain it to. And I don't know what, what kind of dynamics that could possibly introduce. Did, were you fearful of what her reaction might be? Were Certainly. you confident that she would just open up her heart and her arms? Or walk me through some of that. Yeah, that's a good question because my wife and I grew up in the same community. We had the same values. Very, very compatible. And I always thought that I could talk her into doing anything. But when it came to that, I was surprised. Because Amish ladies find a lot of security in their community. And rightly so, in some ways. And so it took my wife a while. Uh, she was on board theologically. She believed, she believed everything. I, you know, we would study the Bible together, and she, it's not like she disagreed with theology. It was just uh, 
the emotional part that you know automatically you know you, you know that you're going to be dealing with the results of the shunning and everything. And there's only one way out of the church, and that's shunning, that's being excommunicated. And so it was a process. It took it took about three years. And one day my wife said, she said, Andy, we have to put a stand. And so the rest of it is history. I, uh, you know, after she told us that. Perhaps we could just maintain our Amish lifestyle and, and still follow the truth. I said, well, that's a great idea because you know, it, our lifestyle is not in, at variance with you know, Bible truth. You had children at the time, and they weren't all infants. The children who were old enough to understand their identity, to understand their church, understand their culture, and presumably appreciate their culture. So now their parents are coming to them and saying, we're rethinking this. We're going to go in a slightly or maybe even a radically different direction. How do you approach that subject with your children? All we could do is talk to them about it. I had to explain to them, and you know they were they were they were never you know, they never pulled away from it, but they had to process it and I remember the night before we started keeping the Sabbath, my oldest daughter brought me a little note that she made, and she says, "Dad, I'm so proud of you that you are embracing what you believe." And I still have that today. That, that, that's something very special to me. You treasure that forever. Yes, but she was, a couple of the kids were in the Amish school at that time. And they had, you know, made all their friends. And so that, the school was the hardest part for the children. And probably even the hardest part for us in some ways. Because nobody wants to see their children struggling. And our children struggled. They lost all these friends. And I say they lost them. Um, not entirely, but there's some truth to that. Um, obviously, they don't have. They're not uh, spending. You know, they're not uh, spending time together really these days. But they're still friendly towards one another. Yeah, yeah. Big changes that impacted you, uh, your life, your lifestyle to some extent, and your family, your family dynamics, your your wider community. Okay, there there, there are plenty of questions left for me to ask. I'll, I'll run out of time. But today you're a lay pastor. We're going to find out about that. You're very active in sharing your faith. You've mentioned righteousness by faith numerous times. We're going to come back to that and ask you to, uh, to elaborate. I'm glad you have joined us for this conversation with Andy Weaver. I'm John Bradshaw. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Hello, I'm Dr. David DeRose, a specialist in internal medicine and preventive medicine. And I've been surprised over the years in working with patients and studying the medical research literature just how powerful hemorrheology is when it comes to health. You may be wondering, what is hemorrheology? Well, I call it the Methuselah Factor, and that's the title of my book. The Methuselah Factor really helps you connect with things that can help your blood be more fluid. You say, why is that important? It's important because it can help you decrease your risk of a stroke or a heart attack, even lower your risk of cancer. But it's a whole lot more than just preventing killer diseases. If you improve your blood fluidity, your mind will work better, you'll perform physically better, and you'll decrease your risk of dementia. So don't hesitate. Dive into the Methuselah Factor. Make a difference in your life and the life of those that you love. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. 
She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit. It's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. Welcome back to Conversations with uh, my special guest, Andy Weaver. Andy, uh, you opted to remain in a in very much an Amish lifestyle. Why? Why, why did you stay with the, the, the trappings of the Amish life? A lot of people would wonder, man, why didn't you just get out of there and become a modern, I don't know, city dweller or something? Why did you opt to stay with your Amish upbringing and culture? You know, there's a saying that goes something like this. You can take the an Amish man out of the Amish, but you can't take the Amish out of the man. And that was true for me. I was, I was Amish at heart and very comfortable with it. As far as culture and lifestyle, very comfortable with it. I enjoyed farming with horse and buck, uh, horses and that kind of thing. And so when we left, um, when we were excommunicated, that was one of the things that we could do to make our change, our, yeah, the change, I guess you would call it, easier. Sure. We wouldn't have to change everything that we knew. We could, we had some theological differences. And so we didn't focus on trying to, to find a car and that kind of thing. It just made our life a lot, our transition a lot easier. I think anyone would be willing to admit that if you look at the Amish lifestyle, there's an awful lot that just makes good sense. That's true. Particularly from a family point of view. Did everybody else feel that way? For example, you mentioned the bishop. There's been excommunication. What do people feel in your community when you when you made it clear you were fundamentally not going to change the kind of people, the kind of family that you were? That's a good question because the the reactions were were not all the same. Obviously, most of my family was very happy and still is happy that we embrace our heritage. And you know, to to our parents, it's a really it's really um, an insult to them when we just turn our lives on everything that they taught us. And I didn't have to turn my life, you know, I, had to, I, had, I didn't have to turn away from everything they taught us. Um, my lifestyle was not in conflict with the Amish way of life for the most part. And so my family was very happy about that. The bishop, one of the bishops wasn't so happy about it. In fact, uh, one bishop stopped at my house one day and he said, Andy, I want a couple things from you. He said, I want you to stop dressing Amish. Oh. I don't want you to share your faith, what you believe, with our people. And he said, I don't want you to walk around and smile like you were not shunned or you were not condemned. And I want you to move to the West Coast. And I thought, wow, you just gave me some ideas. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so not everybody reacted the same way. He saw a threat. Um in us maintaining our lifestyle. Because he knew there was a lot of people in the church that were unhappy, that had questions, theological questions and other questions, and people that just questioned the authority of the bishop. And, and so he saw a threat there. Because um, it would have been a less of a threat if I just left all of that. And then most people would look at that in the Amish church, they would look at that and they say, well, what Andy Weaver believes is not an option. 
But now that I maintain the lifestyle, then that it could become a threat for them because um, it, it kind of opens up a new idea, you know. And so I did get some pushback on that. And I wasn't trying to, to prove anything. I was, just, I was just doing what I was comfortable to do and making the changes that I felt that the Bible required of us and I also want to honor my parents and, and, and respect my heritage. I'm proud of my heritage. Sure, yeah, as you should be. So speaking of changes, uh, there had to be some monumental changes because you were a farmer, you, you're still a farmer, but that was your profession. You've added some strings to your bow along the way. Now, n- now you're a lay pastor, pastoring a congregation. How did that come about? Uh, that was something I was not looking for. So after we... Uh, we were shunned from the, excommunicated from the church. It wasn't long. Another family came around, and they said, Andy, we'd like to study. So we started studying, and, well, they, uh, they became part of our little group. We were home churching, and it wasn't long. Another family came, and then, you know, after a few years, there was a lot of interest. And so we, uh, we built our own little uh, church, and we started having church, and the congregation kept growing, and of course, eventually you have to figure out who's going to lead out when Sabbath comes around. And I found myself in a position that I was not looking for, <laughs> but it's it's an honor, and so I've, I'm a lay pastor at this time. Fantastic. So walk me through what your worship service looks like. Does it look terribly different to something that I would see on any given Sabbath, or does it have a distinct and unique flavor? Um, it, it has some distinctions, but it would be terribly, if you, terribly different from what you experience. Um, because our services are all in English, because not all of our, the people that attend our church are, were Amish. And so our services are in English. We even have a, a former Amish man there that married an English woman. And when I say English, I should probably clarify, we look at all outsiders as English, so. No, no, I understand. For, for the Amish, everybody outside is the English, correct? Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. So you, your congregation now is, is, a, is, a, is a blend of people from different backgrounds. That's correct. And so we have to adapt our services. We had to, uh, we had to adapt to as Amish people because there were certain things that we like, but you know, other cultures coming in, they're not so comfortable with that. And I'm okay with that. You know, Jesus said that this gospel of the kingdom shall go into all the world. And you look at Revelation 14, it says to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And so we don't... We don't um, push back against anybody. Anybody who wants to come to church is, is uh, welcome there. Mm-hmm. So you need to be very careful. You don't want to, you don't want to be perceived in your community as, as being a man with an agenda. Uh, but you certainly do want to share your faith with those that are interested. So how do you, whether at home or when you're out of town someplace, what, what, is, what is sharing your faith like for you? It must be something you love to do. It's something I love to do. And it's like you said, you don't want to be perceived as a sheep stealer because I have eight children. And I'm not interested in having somebody in the community that is looking for every chance they can to pull them away from the parents. I, I just, I don't want that. And I don't want to be that person that will do that to others. However, I found something that I can't help but sharing. And so, obviously, I make myself available. If somebody wants to talk uh, spiritual things, then obviously I'm available. I'm called to do that. Hmm. And sometimes it's a thankless job, but it's something that, um, that the Lord has called me to do. And we've had, we've had a lot of success. And we don't, we don't preach down on, the people that we came from, and we uh, frown on people that come out that are bitter against those people because at the end of the day, you know, we're all saved by grace through faith. And 
Jesus died for everyone, so we don't, you know, God knows the hearts of everyone, but we found a truth that makes us happy and makes us glad, and, and we're, we're always looking to share that with others around us. So tell me what excites you about the Bible. You've mentioned righteousness by faith. Let's talk about that. How do you understand that? What are the, what are the, the things about righteousness by faith that, that, that pump you up and give you joy? I think the thing that really pumps me up is, for most people, and that was true for me, you go through life with a certain amount of guilt hanging over your head. And that keeps us from growing. That keeps us from doing what we're trying to do, to bear fruit, to glorify God. And when I discovered that Jesus accepts us, though, it's just the way we are, that made the world a difference to me. And now I can get up in the morning, and I know, I know that His mercies are new every morning. I can get up in the morning, and I know I got problems. But I know that Jesus is bigger than my problems. And I just, I love the idea of Jesus working in my life each day. I look at my life as the school of Christ. School of Christ. Every once in a while, God gives me a, an assignment. And it looks like, to me, it looks like a real uh, trial, you know. And sometimes we, we flunk it. Let's be, let's be fair. And God says, okay, we've got to do this over. But I look, at, I look at life as a school now. God is trying to recreate me back into his image. And I look back and I know he's made progress. Some days you wonder, you know, but I look back. And so Christ and the gospel means everything to me. I mean, growing up, we were all about bearing fruit. Our church was very strong on, look, we, we will be judged by our works. And that's what the Bible says. And so we were just trying to be as obedient to the church as possible and, and sin as little as possible and that kind of thing. And, but I never understood that coming to Christ, we bear fruit by default. And that's, that makes all the difference in the world. Explain that to me. That's a beautiful thought. Yeah. And so I always tell my children, look, you don't, you don't try to produce fruit. But you take care of the tree. You nourish the tree. And by default, the tree bears fruit. And I remember my one child. She wanted to be baptized, my one daughter. And she says, Dad, I just need a little more time. And I explained to her one day, I said, look, Jesus accepts you just the way you are. And if you accept that, and you accept you know, the truth that God has revealed to you, you're ready to be baptized. And she was so relieved. She said, that I, I thought I had to be perfect before I could be baptized. I said, no, no, that's not how it works. And so it, it, really, it really woke me up. You know, we can talk about all the things that, that God wants us to do. And we can really come off as works-oriented people, you know. And that really, that really helped me. But I believe that, well, we know the Bible says that we're justified by, by faith. And God reaches us where we're at. Mm. I remember being in another country conducting some meetings, and it was time for the baptism. And they came to me and said, Pastor, you have to talk to the lady. She's, she's decided not to be baptized, one of the people... And so I, with the translator, asked her what a challenge was, and she explained that she was worried that she would sin again after she was baptized. And so therefore, uh, she shouldn't be baptized. I explained to her, I'm not worried that you'll sin again. She looked at me. I said, I guarantee you you'll sin again. Not that you must, yes, but you will because you're not the complete product. You're not the finished product. This is why we're baptized, because we need Jesus so desperately. I'm not minimizing sin in any way, shape, That's or form. Correct. That's correct. But righteousness by faith explains that we have faith in Christ. We receive his righteousness. That's correct. We, we grow and, and we grow in faith in Jesus. And 
you know, when we grab a hold of that, when the church grabs a hold of that, we reflect his image more fully. That's correct. Let me ask you this question. I wonder if other people are wondering this along with me. So you mentioned you come from an Amish background, very conservative, uh, very unworldly. Then you mentioned other families came to you and said, we're interested in studying what you're studying. So now they set foot inside your church. They'll feel at home. Now they may look at the church. I'm talking about a denomination now. And see rampant worldliness. That's correct. I think if you took the church that you and I both are part of and just looked at it on the surface, you'd say, oh, very worldly. And that's not a criticism. It's just we're worldly folks. We, we drive cars and we live in houses and we work hard and we earn money and we spend it and we do this and we do that. And worldly, you know, again, that's not meant to be an insult or a, or a judgment call, but, you know, we're hardly uh, peculiar. I'm speaking generally. So somebody coming from a very committed, culturally conservative background into the church if they look too far, they're going to see values demonstrated, even promoted, which would be very different to what they were raised with. That's got to be challenging. Yeah. That's our biggest obstacle as a, as a mission. It's our biggest obstacle. Because in the Amish, you had no converts. But you had a, we had a very high retention rate. We had like a 90-some percent retention rate, but no converts. So we didn't have to deal with that. But in the Church of Christ... You have people coming out of Hollywood, and we have people coming out of the Amish. That, those are be, uh, two, you know, like huge contrasts. Sure. You know, I'm sure you know uh, Clifford Goldstein. Yes, yeah, sure. So I spoke a couple of years ago at Annual Fall Council. I spoke uh, a little bit, shared a little bit about our life. And then after I was done, Clifford Goldstein goes up. He's a secular Jew, you know, comes from a secular Jewish background. And Clifford Goldstein said something that was so incredible. I'll never forget it. He said, isn't it amazing that we have an Amish person and a secular Jew from Miami that are part of the same church? That's right. And then he goes on to say that it was very hard for me, for him as a secular Jew, to become part of a conservative church. The church was so straight-laced. And I thought, Clifford, a conservative church? You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I sure do. Yeah, and so you got two different perspectives based upon where you come from. Yeah, I hasten to point out that Clifford has sat in that very chair and we've had a very similar conversation as the one we're having now. Yeah, and I do want to point out that when you mentioned the Church of Christ, we're not referencing the denomination, the Church of Christ. You were saying that in the general sense, Christ's Church. I just want to clear up any any misunderstandings. So that is interesting, isn't it? And I I think what's really important is not to judge the people, that's correct. Not, not even to judge the organization, not That's to correct. judge the leaders, because leaders are all over the place. Uh, I mean, that come from different backgrounds, That's different correct. cultures, different value systems. But we come to the foot of the cross, and we look up, and the person that we see is Jesus. That's right. It's a personal relationship with Christ. We don't worship Christ through, through the uh, denomination. It's, this is a personal relationship with Christ, and we need one another. So I love organized. I believe in organized church. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that this is something personal that happens between us and Christ, day by day. Yeah. Tell me before we're done here, what the, what the gospel means to you, how you understand the gospel, what does it mean in your life? So, obviously, you know, I shared a little bit of it earlier, but I think 
one thing that's transforming to me, and you know, I guess the, to answer what the gospel means to me, is you know, Paul says that our lives are hid in Christ. I believe that after we come to Christ, when God the Father looks at my record, he, see, he sees Christ's record. Because my life is hid in Christ. I receive the righteousness of Christ. I receive the life of Christ in my stead. And so now God is working in me to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But I have salvation. Because my, my salvation does not depend on my path. My, my salvation depends on what Christ did. And so it's a, an absolutely transforming, you know, by default we become changed, right? So that was the, that's what the gospel means to me. Christ has become, my life is hitting Christ. That's what I'm trying to the say. The Bible speaks about Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. That's correct. So when we come to faith in Jesus, he lives his life in us. We receive the gift of salvation. It's not, well, if you pass this test, I'll give you the gift of salvation. That's correct. It's yours. And now we grow in Jesus. That's correct. And if our eyes are fixed on him, we have to grow. We have to become more like him. By beholding the paraphrases, we become changed. That's correct. And so there's grace in Jesus to make us what we can't make ourselves. That's correct. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things that, especially coming from an Amish background, that is really transforming. How's the church going? Going okay? Going well. Yeah. We're we're growing and, you know, we have growing pains, as you can imagine. Sure. But... Yeah, it's going well, despite its pastor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, when God calls, what are you going to do? It's 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 humbling that God would use a person like me, you know, despite despite all my my shortcomings and everything. So God is good, always good, always good. Hey, this has been fun. Uh, God has been working in your life, still working. I wish you the very best. Uh, Thank you, John. Our love to Naomi and your beautiful children, and uh, truly the best is yet to come. Yeah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, John. And thank you for joining us. It's been fun. He is Andy Weaver. I'm John Bradshaw, and this has been our conversation.